friends and book lovers, welcome to yet another episode of Two Book Nits Talking with me, Hani Ahmad, and my lovely partner, Diana Young. We had a conversation with Shivani Sivagurunathan on her new book, What Has Happened to Harry Pillai, and it's actually a collection of two novellas. Actually, she was my thesis supervisor when I was doing my master's on English literature. So I was very, very excited to interview her. You know, finally get to show my teacher that what she's taught me, <laughs> I've actually put it to use. <laughs> so I'm actually out there analyzing books like she taught me to. Actually, this is not her first book out. You may have read her 2021 release, which was Yalpana. And she's actually got a number of poetry books out there. But of course, these are generally smaller press um, university releases. So, But she has been published in sort of magazines and journals, including Cha, the Asian literary magazine, Agenda, uh, construction literary magazine. She, she started writing prose all the way back in 2011. Her first book, Wildlife on Cold Island, was released. And if there's anything else that you notice about all her books, there's, there's this common theme that all her books are set on the same Cold Island, which she will touch on uh, during our conversation with her. I know, it was, a really good, um, it was a really good conversation. One of the nice things about talking to somebody that you, you, sort, of, you sort of get her, her brainwave. So we had a lot of the same ideas about the topics that she wrote about in her, in her book. And you, you take a lot of the messages away that she actually put in because we could read them from her point of view as well. You know, for me, that was something that I thought I, I could pick up a lot, a lot on because maybe I just have a little bit more understanding of you know, the way she writes. Okay, everybody, enjoy the interview. Can we just actually begin? Just give us a little bit of a rundown of what has happened to Harry Pillay, which is actually just two stories, right? There's two, two novellas in here, uh, Master Your Life and What Has Happened to Harry Pillay. Tell us a little bit about these stories. Sure, Diana. So as you've already mentioned, uh, What Has Happened to Harry Pillay is a collection of two novellas. Uh, one is What Has Happened to Harry Pillay and the other is Master Your Life. And both novellas are set on a fictional island I created just over 10 years ago, which makes me sound really old. And the island is called Coal Island. And the two stories are separate, but there is a um, overarching theme that runs through both novellas. And that is the giving away of power to figures of authority and the colonization of the mind. So in Master Your Life, uh, the protagonist, Debbie Chow, has basically experienced a string of terrible tragedies and she's got a pattern of basically giving her her life away to people in her life that she's uh, that she admires so there's a ex-boyfriend her good friend and then eventually she finds herself in a spiritual cult and she basically gives herself away to the master of the the cult so she has to basically navigate through her time in that uh, context. And the question then is, you know, will she survive? And if she does, how will she survive? The second uh, novella, What Has Happened to Harry Pillay, features Harry Pillay, who is who has kept his three adult daughters under lock and key and basically uh, also dominates uh, their lives, controls their movements. Uh, but when we meet the daughters, they're already at that point in their lives when they are quietly rebelling 
against him and his ideologies and methodologies, you know, of how of control. Cheerful stuff, Shivani. Very cheerful. I know it's. Um, I have to say uh, that uh, whenever I have uh, introduced uh, these stories uh, to people and and when they've read them as well, you know, the responses are often, oh, these are bleak, but they sort of transport you into uh, very uh, sort of dark areas in in the psyche and in life in general. So yes, these are not joyful stories for sure, but um, I think important ones to be told. Okay, before we go a little bit more, a little bit deeper into the story, can we talk a little bit about Coal Island um, as a setting? Is it based on a place that you know? What I like about it is because you set it on an island, it also has a bit of that isolation Mm -hmm. and where small subsets of communities can actually exist and people don't know. Um, You know, people from the mainland, so to speak, might not necessarily know what goes on. So can you tell us a little bit on why you set your stories on an island? Yes, for sure. I mean, I think I'll have to take you back uh, to my beginnings as a fiction writer. So I started writing early in life, but I was writing poetry. And when I shifted to writing fiction, I'd always wanted to write fiction. I found it really impossible to uh, write stories that were based in locations that I knew. So, for example, stories that were set in Subang Jaya or Podikton, where I came from, where I'm, where I'm from, always turned out stilted and just didn't seem to flow very well. But when I sort of, sort of accidentally created Coal Island, when um, I gave up attempting to set my stories in Kuala Lumpur or Subang Jaya, but um, created an island that was still located in Malaysia. But as I began to write stories uh, set on Coal Island, I realized that actually Coal Island was very much um, based on Port Dixon, which is where I grew up. And Port Dixon is a small town and it has an island vibe, obviously it's by the sea as well. And it has that sort of small town feeling and and the the people kind of know one another. Um, And that was my experience growing up in the 80s and 90s in Malaysia. And so after that, I found that, you know, having a a fictional setting really worked for me. So I continued to go back to Coal Island because every time I returned to Coal Island, I found that there were new stories, um, new characters, and it just really was conducive for my imagination. It just allowed um, me to write freely and to explore topics that are very much uh, connected to Malaysia and, and centered on Malaysia without the pressure uh, of of having a, a, a setting that, that was um, identifiable by people. So I quite like that element of mystery as well, you know, which is not, it's not mysterious anymore because nowadays I talk very openly about the fact that Coal Island was based on Port Dixon where, where I grew up. But I think that distance really helps me to explore freely and it also leaves lots of room for play and experimentation. So subsequently, I have gone back to Coal Island again and again. And I've often wondered, you know, will it ever get stale and monotonous? Uh, but to me, not yet. So I think that's going to be my go-to place for a setting, at least for the next few books and stories. I I have this sense reading these books that they're kind of like set in a bygone era. So there's a historical feel to your writing. Was that something that you were going for? Do you mean what has happened to Harry Pillay in particular or Master Your Life as well? I would say both of them. 
Mm, that's that's an interesting observation. Actually, I remember when I first written What Has Happened to Harry Pillay, which, by the way, was written in 2014. So it's quite a, a number of years ago. And a friend of mine said, why is this written as though it's a Victorian story? And of course, it wasn't my intention. And I, I when I look back at it, I, I realized that, oh, yes, of course, you know, there's a kind of like grandiosity in the way the, the, the some of the sentences are constructed. Um, but then I realized that actually it's very much fitting for the kind of people that inhabit these stories, because these are people who generally live in isolation. They are cut off from society for various reasons. You know, they are people who live on the margins of society in, a, in various ways. So there's a it's an element of being cut off and 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 existing in a in a sort of bubble. So perhaps that's why that archaic um, feeling or mood is there. And I think particularly in in what has happened to Harry Pillay, I, 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 it was definitely something that I became more conscious of because these were people who um, hadn't acculturated. You know, um, Harry Pillay himself had left Sri Lanka at some point in his life. But he never quite entered Malaysian society. His daughters also don't know what it really means to be a Malaysian and to um, interact with other cultures and communities, which, of course, then they become more curious about, which is why they begin to uh, leave the house and meet other uh, people from other communities, like Sally, the, the, the youngest triplet who befriends the Orang Asli community, and then Betty, who befriends the lighthouse keeper, who is Malay, and his wife, who's Malay. And that's their introduction to the outside world and to the complexities of Malaysian life. So I think that the fact that they um, live a very sheltered life means that also their vocabulary and, the, and their, their perceptions and perspectives of the world are somewhat stunted and may appear then to be quite old-fashioned. The triplet sisters are famous on Coal Island, and yet most people can count the number of times they've seen the sisters with their own eyes. There's island talk, obviously, about their snobbery, their possibly most definitely disabilities, their witchery, their suffering, their strange, abnormal lives of domestic incarceration. For 30 years, the Pillay sisters have lived in the cozy clutches of their formidable father, a man the island knows as a mysterious shadow rather than as a full person who keeps himself and every element associated with it, his house, his wife, his daughters, and the things they have collected and built as one unit of life, out of reach. A half-real man, Harry Pillay holds the world of the island at bay with his dark, unseen fingers. No. He will not permit the island to see him or his daughters to know them in any way that could bring the family out of the mists of speculation, worry and doubt. Are they real? Mere suggestions of people? To some extent, Harry Pillay's daughters hear the questions and the tireless ponderings in the way people who are talked about hear utterances from spaces they have never visited. the kind of vibe I got from reading the second story I was thinking like Bronte sisters yes somebody else said the same thing 
and White Sargossa Sea as well, yeah. because maybe it's an island setting. By the way, White Sargossa Sea has been a huge influence for me. I mean, it's it's one of those books that I was obsessed <laughs> with in my 20s uh, when I was reading a lot of Caribbean literature when I was doing my MA. And Jean Rhys was uh, just a writer that I felt was a huge discovery for me. So I'm happy that White Sargasso Sea has sort of entered the, the novella in some way. I'm not surprised because obviously, you know, it was a, it's a big influence. But the Bronte sisters reference, honey, that's really interesting because somebody else said the same thing to me. He said, mm. this, is, this reminds me of, of the three, you know, Bronte sisters sitting at home and kind of like inventing their own characters and, you know, entertaining themselves <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also there's a bit of a gothicness to mm. to a little bit of how you write. I I don't know. Maybe just the second story because that one I I mean I liked your second story more than your first. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just liked. I, I think there was a lot of really cool imagery and prose in your second one as well. Mm-hmm. My next question is, I guess I want to talk a little bit about female agency, right? Mm. Because we always talk about female characters and giving them power over their lives, right? And then you were talking about how these are characters that give away a lot of their power. However, for like your first protagonist, like Debbie, right? I kind of thought, you know, people always say when women are given the ability to make decisions for themselves, they probably would want to use it for good or they want to use it. And yet, how you get her agency is that she used, she used it to join a cult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the same. Like you have like these this three sisters who, who kind of like rebel in their small ways mm-hmm. and you give them decisions that are not necessarily good decisions. And I always felt in Malaysia, especially when you talk about female characters in books, in film, in TV, mm-hmm. There's always this problem when you give them this kind of agency. You give them power and then you give them decisions that people don't agree with. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the thing that I want to discuss, maybe to talk about why these sort of characters fascinate you mm-hmm. and, and what, do you, what do you have to say about this sort of like idea of you know, female agency in your novels? Mm-hmm. First of all, I, I think it's complex and it's not it's not straightforward. It's definitely not easy. So that was what interested me in terms of how does one move from a space of suppression and oppression to that point where one then attempts to move out of it. First of all, there's this there's this journey towards towards agency. So first of all, it's like even recognizing that you're in that position. I think that's already um, an important step. And then recognizing the um, fact of and you know being oppressed or, or, or trapped in one situation doesn't necessarily mean that you know you're, you're out. It then means that how do you navigate through the complexities of the situation um, to get out of that? And so I wanted to look at it realistically. Of course, I, I, I think it would be fantastic if you know if 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 a female character recognized that she was in this position and then was able to straight away make the right decisions and and then you know is is free i i i think that would be too much of a two dimensional happy ending kind of um story which wasn't what i was going for as you rightly pointed out honey that these are not uh, joyful stories and they're not certainly not easy stories as well the other thing is that i think is important is that um when people experience great trauma and heartbreak and they're going through a lot of psychological and emotional turbulence, they're not going to be able to make the right decisions. And I wanted to explore the mistakes that we make 
by we, I mean, you know, we human beings. And then, of course, specifically in, the, in the, both the stories, uh, there are women who are in this, in this situation. I've asked people this several times, whether they think the ending for Master Your Life is a, is a happy one. And people look at me and say, I don't think you can say this is a happy ending. But I said optimistic to some extent, perhaps, because she does make a decision to go because she could easily have stayed within that situation. But she leaves and she also begins to inhabit her brokenness on her own. I mean, it's an autonomy that's flickering. I'll tell you also that I was influenced by a short story by Margaret Atwood uh, called Bluebeard's Egg, which has always mm. sort of stayed with me. You know, it's a, it's a story, again, of, of, of a woman being very much attached to her husband and makes the worst decisions because she's thinking too emotionally and she can't really see the, the you know what's going on very clearly. And at the end, she realizes many terrible things. But we don't really know whether she's going to flourish after this. But there is a tiny indication that the realization that she's in the situation is, is already a movement forward. So there's a hint that some kind of autonomy is beginning to rise. But more than that, we don't know, you know what will happen. But in that sense, the fact that it has emerged somewhat is sort of optimistic. So I think in, in Debbie's case, for sure, the decision to, to act, the decision to leave, and then at the end, realizing that she, you know what she has is herself and that should be enough, to me indicates that... It's hopeful. Hope. Yeah, it's, there's a bit of hope. There's hope. And I would say, you know, of course, in Harry Pillay, that the three sisters, you know, realistically speaking, if they've been trapped in, in the house, living by their father's ideologies... Would they really be able to uh, make the, the 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 right decisions, the ones that are going to be serving their well-being um, immediately? No, it's going to be a wonky, you know, sort of movement towards uh, action and agency. And yes, so I, I think the fact that they do act is uh, indicative that they're moving away from that um, entrapment. Hmm. I mean, I sort of along the same lines i was looking at this this one line that you had in in the second book in the second story uh where it says sally once threatened to burn every single object in the house she seemed to think none of these things matter so in a sense i took that to mean that sally was the one sister who who realized that a lot of the trappings of house and home was holding her back yes. and would it do you think it would be fair to say that Sally's ability to detach from her house and home, as it were, is the key to their salvation. Absolutely, because she's not, um, she, she doesn't get swayed by conventions, rules, regulations, as much as Penny does. Penny, Penny is definitely the most um, obedient of the sisters, which is why she's also more sneaky and, um, you know, she, she's <laughs> two-faced. Betty's sort of in the middle and then Sally. Um, Sally is is more primal, I would say. I mean, actually, when I was writing her, it was quite difficult to get her her, her voice because of separate from, from the other sisters because she is very different from, from, the, from the other two. And she 
moves more along with her instincts and she doesn't buy into the, can I say BS? I am allowed mm. to say yes. Okay. She doesn't buy into that. Yeah, so she, just, she doesn't buy into that as much. And, and that detachment certainly serves her, gives her insight. Um, and, she's, and it gives her fearlessness, which, which I think is important in such an extreme situation where what you need is that destruction. You know, light conversation or even an argument isn't going to uh, help them uh, get out of the situation. It has to be something almost as extreme as the situation that they're in that's going to help them get out of it, which is why we have quite a bit of violence in that, in that story as well. Father-daughters. Mm-hmm. Are you fascinated by them, father-daughter stories? Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe in this, in this novel, uh, book, it's maybe evident, uh, but in my other stories, not so much. So I, I wouldn't say like it's an obsession. I know what my obsessions are. I'm, I'm obsessed with the themes of displacement and, and, and marginalization. Mm. That one I see recurring for sure in, in all my stories. In fact, I can't get away from those themes. But father-daughter, I think it's specific to this to this book. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's the idea of the masculine and the feminine, right? When we're talking again about even like the guru and Debbie yes. as well, right? You have her looking for father, yes, for guidance, like a father kind of figure. That's why I guess that's why I sort of like picked up on that. But okay, <laughs> I have to read more of your stories. I think then. <laughs> um, in terms of a paternal figure, yes, or, mm. I would say rather than just paternal, I'd say parental figure. Um, that many people are looking for, you know, when they go into relationships and when they go into certain organizations and particularly um, religious organizations, spiritual organizations. And if there is a leader, then often enough, you'll find that people are looking for a replacement of a parent that didn't serve them well when they were growing up. And I say this based on my own experiences, because um, Mastery of Life was actually written based on years of experiences I've had in spiritual communities. So spirituality is one of my interests, always intrigued me, metaphysical issues. You know, when I was younger, it it, um, appeared in the form of uh, philosophy and then it morphed into spirituality. And then I started to befriend people who were interested in similar topics. And I started noticing a pattern in the people that I was meeting. And many of them were, you know, highly, highly intelligent and functional and capable. And then somehow in a certain area of their lives where I believe they've been wounded, uh, suddenly the intelligence just sort of um, flies out the window. And then they start making these sort of, yeah, not very good decisions and start behaving in ways that disable them, you know, that that don't allow them to um, fully inhabit who they are. And that was what really intrigued me. So that was based on, yeah, my, my, my experiences of, of meeting many people uh, for, for along my own journey of um, several years and then putting that into a story. So I would say that Master Your Life is probably my most um, realistic story in that um, mm. it was heavily derived from, from my own life. Um, and I can clearly also map the characters to actual people, although I'll never, I'll never name those people. <laughs> Interesting. Part of the, I think, um, appeal of a, a spiritual cult or a cult of any kind is that perhaps you don't have to make so many decisions. Yes. Decisions are made for you. And I think that's a relief, especially for 
for people who have come to a point in their lives when they come to a dead end, right? So they're yeah. not entirely sure how to, yeah. So I, I thought, yeah, that, I thought that captured, you captured the cult vibe. <laughs> Again, because, because I, I had really well many thought. experiences <laughs> and I also did research. I, I did spend many nights uh, watching lots of documentaries on cults and interviews with people who had been in cults. And I also even watched documentaries on, on like North Korea, which I think is basically a, a large cult on a national level. Uh, I just wanted to get into that headspace of um, what it would be, uh, what, what it's like to be completely given, you know, devoted to a particular human being that comes with a particular way of thinking. Those were, um, so I did, yeah, there was a lot of work involved in, in getting the, the cult environment um, accurate. It is said that when Debbie Chow walked into the grounds of the Master Your Life establishment, the grass mysteriously rearranged itself into a perfectly manicured lawn. She donated her life to Sujan Rao, a.k.a. Master's Organization, and together with the five other members of Master Your Life, or MYL, Pinky, Jocelyn, Timothy, Sinfat, and Ganapati, she'd found the family she had longed for. That is what MYL will do to you, so the story goes on the island. It gives you what you have been craving for since the beginning of human life, and it can also take it away. Oh, it can take it away was the warning that drifted around the island once MYL had become a heavy presence eight years into their arrival. The caution wasn't sparked by Debbie's marvellous conversion from a reeking and blotchy alcoholic to a washed and powdered saffron-robed street preacher. In fact, her transformation diluted stories of alarm and worry that parents were using on their children and insecure spouses were using on their flighty other halves to stop them from going down the route of the desperate and the depressed who so easily found themselves on JWW Birch Lane. By years 8, 9, 10, MYL had increased its population from the original five who had travelled with their master to 25, 40 and 70. More land was bought, new buildings popped up behind the sage green building and when one lifer, as they eventually started being called by the islanders, went to the other side of the island to inquire about a piece of land, anxiety reverberated through many households. It was an anxiety that ultimately exploded in MYL's 10th year, when the tragedy that obliterated more lives than anyone could imagine happened. So along the lines of talking about saviors, there's this recurrent thing that, that Debbie says, she, she keeps saying, thank God for Geraldine, because Geraldine is the person who was there for her when she lost you know, her father and then her son. So, so Geraldine was, in a sense, she was her first savior. And yet Ger Geraldine is a bosom friend, but she, she ignores Debbie's pain. She dismisses her grief. She's absolutely clueless to Debbie's actual wants and needs. So she kind of is like she's a savior, but she's just there. She has a savior complex. She's sort of using Debbie in a way yeah. to soothe herself. So yeah, so Geraldine acts, she thinks that she's Debbie's savior. And, you know, predictably, she doesn't take it lightly when Debbie finds a new savior. So 
Do you think Geraldine needed Debbie more to be, and she needed to be her savior more than Debbie needed to be saved by Geraldine? Who that's do you a, think got more out of that relationship? Yeah, that's a really um, insightful point, Diana. And I'm glad you picked up on that because I've had readers tell me that um, Geraldine was a really good friend and I had to kind of <laughs> look at those people in, in a new light because um, how could you not see that um, it was very much a one-sided um, friendship? And I don't know if I would call it a friendship necessarily. It was more like a codependency, you know? And um, indeed, uh, Geraldine very much needed somebody to control. And a character like Debbie was the perfect person for that. You know, essentially, Debbie has spent most of her life being a doormat. And so, you know, she <laughs> she um, is is the sort of person who would um, get attracted to a person like Geraldine, because what Debbie wants is somebody to make the decisions for her and to basically lead her life for her, uh, because she doesn't know how to make decisions or she doesn't feel like she has the capacity to do that. But of course, we, we are witnessing Debbie's evolution. You know, what we are seeing essentially is uh, her growth. It's a difficult one. And that's essentially the the, the, the whole novella. It's that, that, that the journey that um, Debbie takes uh, towards that point of birthing herself out of this space of um, being colonized by others. So, yes, I, I think, Diana, you, you're, you're right there. I think that um, Geraldine definitely needed Debbie as much as Debbie needed Geraldine. That's where I, I would maybe differ a bit because I, I think Debbie, for that time when she didn't didn't feel into her own autonomy, um, needed to be led in a certain way. That's her belief anyway. It, it's, it's probably not true, but that was her perception that she wasn't capable of making decisions on her own. And of course, when she does eventually come to that point where... Um, she has a sense that she can move away, make a decision for herself. She <laughs> enters a cult. So that's the irony. Right? <laughs> so she replaces one figure of authority with, with another. Hmm. I like that your book explores a lot of love, but also sexuality. You know, I always feel that sometimes you read a lot of local writers, there's a lot of restraint. I like that's how Betty and, and Penny kind of explores a certain degree of independence and it's through sex, mm. you know? And of course, the master controls like his disciples via sex. Yeah. It is kind of like very furtive and dark longings of women that, that you kind of explore through your character. So yeah, can you talk a little bit about that, about how you explore, I guess, a certain degree of desire, mm. a desire to be needed, a desire to be free yeah. via, you know, by sex, basically. Yeah. yeah, I just feel like with um, sexuality and women, so much has been conditioned, you know, for us. Like so much has been prescribed for us. Like this is how women should be behaving, uh, how they should be responding to their bodies, how they should be presenting their bodies, and of course, how much advantage has been taken of women's bodies. So, in Master Your Life, that was primary on my mind because. Uh, sexual abuse is so rampant in many of these spiritual and religious settings where God and divinity and, and religious teachings are being used in order to condone sexual abuse. So this is something that I had witnessed firsthand. And I don't, I mean, this is not a new topic, but it became very alive and fresh for me because I started seeing people actually 
you know, being affected by this. So I wanted to show just how manipulative uh, some of these figures of authority uh, could be and how easily women, you know, because there's so many rules and expectations uh, prescribed uh, to women, you know, assigned to them, uh, women easily get um, pulled into these situations. And sometimes even, you know, within a, a, a woman's perspective, you know, they think that that's what they should be doing. You know, if, if I am going to gain some power in this cult, you know, as De Debbie thinks, then sure, if this is the way, if this is the way to God, if this is the way to salvation, then... But he's freeing me, right? He's freeing me to enjoy my desires, right? Exactly. Yeah. He's allowing me. Yes, ex precisely that. And of course, you know, I wanted to show how convoluted and problematic that is. I'm using very, you know, sort of mild words right now. We probably use stronger <laughs> words. <laughs> And then, of course, in 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 her, what has happened to Harry Pillay, you know, the sisters have been banned, you know, from from expressing themselves. And I wanted to show that actually, sexuality, female sexuality, it's, it's natural. I mean, it's just you know a part of of who we are, and it's uh, not not as not a taboo. And of course, for in the way that um, uh, Betty and and Penny are exploring their sexuality, it's very much a taboo because of the way they have been brought up. You know, they've been taught that you know, they, they don't have these needs and that's something that they shouldn't be doing. So yes, I, I wanted them to have the, the freedom to, to explore that. But of course, it comes with consequences. And it's also uncomfortable, you know, for, for Penny in particular, I think Betty is a, a, a lot uh, more at ease with her sexuality, I think just in terms of her temperament. But for Penny, it's sort of, you know, a little bit more difficult because she has, she's more conditioned by her father's thinking. Um, by this patriarchal mold, essentially, you know, in both stories, there is that patriarchal mold that the women are responding to and eventually have to break out of. I think another thing that was I was struck with, uh, but, but that point was that when Debbie was in the cult, she she managed to be freer with herself, basically, because she had she, she could basically abdicate responsibility at the same time. She could say that, you know, whatever I was doing, this is not my choice. So, you know, whatever, I don't have to bear any consequences yes. of what happens, right? Because somebody else is going to decide this. Okay, there was another quote I found fascinating um, from what has happened to Harry Poulet, where we have Sally thinking, I have long happily realized that my real family and I don't have a personal relationship. We don't spill the bitter secrets of our hearts. We are too in love with one another to expect sudden emotional invasions. Now that is a fascinating quote to me. We are too in love with each other. This really speaks to the dysfunction in uh, families and yeah. how we, you know, we, we have this inability to communicate, to really share our real thoughts and desires with, with the people who are meant to be our nearest and dearest, right? Yeah. We, we have to pretend, we have to sort of hide who we really are mm. in order to get along. Yeah. When she talks about her real family here, she's actually referring to the Orang Asli family. In her mind, she has accepted them as her true family. What she perceives is they accept her unconditionally. Um, they they welcome her, they enjoy her company, and they're not too intrusive and they're not controlling. So this is Sally's way of saying that, um, you know, by personal relationship here, she means that 
they're not invading her personal space. They're not invading her private space and attempting to control it, manipulate it, just like her father does. So here, they're just sort of, there's more ease and, and freedom. We don't need to be um, telling one another some of our secrets because even, you know, secrets are, some secrets are, are meant to be kept, you know, meant to be honoured and, and respected privately. It should be a question of willingness to reveal something um, that's deep within our hearts. But Harry Pillay expects his his daughters to give everything to him. You know, they, he doesn't respect their, uh, you know, them as human beings. He doesn't respect their personal spaces. So here, this is really what she what she's um, alluding to, you know. She doesn't have to tell them what she doesn't want to tell them. And if she wants to, she can. So she says, like, so I know I can chew on a lovely piece of barbecued meat. So just doing a very simple thing like eating uh, with them um, and tell them about the yellow bird that entered the house. And instinct reminds me that I must not reveal how I caught the bird while it was trying to hop towards Satan's room and how, yeah, to to save it from the doom that befalls every living thing in the house of Satan. Yeah, mm. okay, I almost choked it to that. Okay, it becomes really dark there. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> no, but but you're right also, Diana, that in the sense that she's she's also been so programmed to look at family as, um, you know, she, as something very uh, domineering and it's a very unhealthy something to be endured family something to be endured yes so so she has a very um sort of perverse understanding of of family so it's a very mixed up relationship that she has to the concept of family but she's attempting to create a family that she she likes and so she has informally unofficially adopted the orang asli family as hers you know mm. She's very observant though. I mean, I felt yeah. that she's the one that seemed to know what's going on with her sisters. She kind of sees her sisters quite clearly and when why her sisters are still kind of living in this kind yeah. of like cocoon lies that her father kind of, you know. So she's the one that eventually know that she has to take matters into her own hands. So I think this goes back to the point uh, made earlier about how she's um, she stands apart, you know, mm. and she doesn't, um, she doesn't buy into the, the rubbish as much because she's also, I mean, it's her temperament, uh, I think, as well. And as I said, I kind of saw her as a kind of half-human, half-animal. Feral. Character. Yeah, she's feral. She's feral. And there's this kind of purity about her that I think was working for her to a certain extent. I mean, nothing's really working for any of the characters in this in this story. <laughs> um, but uh, working for her in the sense that she um, can tell truths that the sisters aren't necessarily willing to tell certainly not penny mm. have, you, have you asked her about your motherhood question diana no i haven't okay no go <laughs> ahead <laughs> that's it that's it segue into it because we're, we're talking about families yeah, yeah. And, and family familial dysfunction and all that i i was fascinated by this idea that you know you have an absentee mother in both of these mm. stories so you know in the first story debbie's mother walks away from her many many years ago and and mm. but she's still the scene that where her mother packs her yellow suitcase and waits for her car it's something that still plays in her mind and it still wounds her many years later in the second story we have the mother who is still alive but she's chosen to withdraw into her own world like so she lives like like a hikikomori and she lives in her own room she doesn't come out she doesn't she doesn't mix with the family and yeah, and, and I think I think it's almost as if the mother's absence in the in these stories is more palpable than if they had been 
present in their daughter's life. And, and it kind of feels like you never really have this kind of sense of a, a father withdrawing from a from her daughter's from its daughter's life, it doesn't seem to affect them as much, and it's it's I suppose because women are always the ones who bear the greatest burden when a family is you know is when you have a patriarchal system in the family and mothers have to bear a lot of that burden and they have to they have a lot of pain from their own upbringing as well, and this is really something that really affects the family life as a whole. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the whole system, the whole family is, is a, in a disarray because of the pain that mothers bear from being daughters as well. Yes. Yeah, and their inability to support their daughters, as you rightly point out, stems from their own your, their own uh, uh, pain and unresolved issues that then gets basically inherited, it's, that's basically inherited by their daughters. And so then the cycle continues. I wouldn't say that I was very conscious about this while writing the stories, but eventually as I was working on them, I, you know, it became very clear that the, that the mothers were, um, you know, absent figures. And then I realized that actually, yes, it, it makes complete sense because they weren't able to provide that camaraderie and, and, and support and friendship and, and love. And protection and, as well. And protection, yeah. exactly, and protection. And so their daughters are there with, with these open wounds. Uh, but what could the mothers have done? I mean, they themselves hadn't healed their wounds and they were doing the best that they could. And and so the consequence of that, which and the best that they could do was basically not not good enough because the the, the daughters were left um, to kind of fend for themselves. So yes, I mean, I, I, I wanted I wanted to show the, the impact of that and how it is generational and that the cycle continues until that you burn a house down. <laughs> until you burn a house down or you, you know, okay, no, no spoilers, but you know, some <laughs> other destructive things happen. <laughs> Sell everything and join a cult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, we're going to go into writing and booknet questions. I guess my first question is, I mean, either than the White Sargossa Sea, since you said that that sort of like has given you that Caribbean vibe to Cold Island, which it does. Mm -hmm. What other books and writers have, you know, influenced you or you've liked through the years? Yeah, so host of Caribbean writers for sure. As I said, in my 20s, I spent a lot of time reading them. So Jean Reese is, is one of them. Um, okay, so Sam Salvan, uh, Phyllis Shand, Elfrey, uh, Ramabai, Espinay. So th these are, um, I'm not sure how, how, how well known they'd, they'd be here, but yeah, so, so those are some of the names that come to mind. I always get nervous when, when I get this question because I know that I will not be able to cover all the books and all the, the, the writers. And at one point, Salman Rushdie was definitely an influence. I, I can stop reading him after a while, but definitely in 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 my twenties he was an influence. And then I think in terms of novellas in particular, since we're talking about novellas, certain novellas that stayed with me and and definitely helped me to write my own novellas, particularly with what has happened to Harry Pillay, because you know when I first started writing it in two thousand fourteen, I thought, okay, I better go and read 
novellas, like go on a reading spree, you know, just to get a feel of the form. And the ones that come to mind are like Death of Ivan Ilyich. Okay, again, depressing story <laughs> by Tolstoy. Um, Carson McCullers, but yeah, Carson McCullers has, has been quite a quite an influence. I, I, this is a Gothic uh, American writer, not very well known these days also, but uh, um, Ballad at the Sad Cafe was a, a, a novella. I think it's, it's, it's we could maybe probably, probably pass as a, as a very long short story. And what else? Edith Wharton, I remember Ethan Frome, and then Thomas Mann, The Death, of, uh, De- Death in, in Venice. And then, um, then of course, our, all our Malaysian writers. So um, what what happens is when I'm teaching, you know, because I was teaching Malaysian literature for a while, that was my time to also then, you know, kind of explore our Malaysian writers. So um, I'd say Kias Maniam is is an influence, although probably I, you can't really see it in in the in the work necessarily. And of course, I love the novels of Tan Tuan Eng too. And Prita Samarasan's first novel was. Uh, was something I was obsessed over for some years. <laughs> um, yeah, so those are some of my some of my writers. Okay, so you touched on the fact that you teach you teach English, so you're a professor of English literature. Can we talk a little bit about how what it's like when you're somebody who who, who who's meant to analyze and think about literature as part of your day job? And what it's like to be an author now that you know you've had you've, you're constantly thinking about the meanings. I have to be very careful, Diana. I mean, that is uh, something that can creep into the writing, which is da- dangerous because then you start to overthink what you're writing, and then you start thinking in terms of a literary critic. You know, these are the symbols, these are the motives, and but um, I sort of trained myself to uh, divorce the two spaces when I'm writing. So when I'm writing, I'm just writing. I I, I don't analyze. In fact, I, I try to um, illogicalize myself. You know, I try to sort of take that that part of me, which is, which is, by the way, comes in handy during the editing process. Um, so I see the function of that, but it is can be very problematic when you are writing. So I think it's years of practice. Um, and I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but uh, years of practice has helped me to distinguish the two modes of thinking. So I think it happens usually towards the end of the the process of completing a story or a book when i start to look more closely at some of the nuances so the the training as a literary um critic or uh, analyst kind of helps at those in those moments when i can see like the layers and <laughs> and then the literary devices and all of that but yeah definitely cannot enter the process of writing mm. So do you meticulously plot your novels? Do you know exactly how they're going to end? Or do you occasionally allow them to take your hand and lead you down strange places? So I'm going to give a very irritating answer. It's a mix of the two. Okay. You know, <laughs> Which is usually the case. It's all, yeah, yeah. Because, no, but because I, I started writing poetry, right? I started off as a poet. And with poetry, you know, I don't plan anything. I just write, you know, it's, it's, I write. And then, of course, after that, you edit and things like that. But the you know the, the the initial process is one that's very spontaneous and that doesn't require a, any meticulous plotting or anything so when i started writing fiction i used that same method and it often it was often interesting in the beginning but i couldn't sustain it 
So then I learned from a fellow writer who was kind enough to help me because I was like saying, I'm struggling with the, the form of the novel. I, I just don't fathom it. And she basically said, look, listen, you've got to structure. You've got to think about the big picture. You've got to work think some things out. You know, who are your characters? How are they interacting with one another? What's happening in this scene, that scene, that scene? And that's when I started um, actually creating what I'd call a loose plot. So I know just generally what the main intentions of this chapter are. And then um, I leave myself room for discovery as well, because I found that if I over um, plan everything, then that that the fact that there isn't room for play and discovery makes me uninspired. And then then I, I, I'm not connected to the material anymore. And then it's difficult for me to write. So yeah, bit of bit of both. I'm going to pick your brain a little bit, uh, seeing as you're somebody who actually teaches creative writing as well. Do you do you believe that you hey, must listen, go Diana, to school? Listen, Diana, I didn't go to school writing. to study creative writing, which is why sometimes when I look at my students, I think, gosh, you know, there are pros and cons to this process of, of learning creative writing in a classroom. I mean, I, as I said, I started off as a child and then I, I all my degrees were in literature. And when I wanted to write uh, fiction, I taught myself because even though you have studied, um, you know, literature it doesn't mean you can write, you know, it's a different um, process. So I basically learned through uh, reading and reading and reading and then also getting books on, on creative writing techniques and things like that. So I was self-taught and then published a book and then the University of Nottingham hired me to teach creative writing. So I thought, OK, and I That's learned That's how you got lot. to know each other. Right. And that's how we got to know Diana. Yes. <laughs> Although not through creative writing, through literature. I, I think studying creative writing can be useful because you learn certain techniques and in a way that's in, in, a, in a speedy fashion. So you don't have to spend too much time picking these things up. There's a danger too if you have a very prescriptive teacher. So if your teacher tells you this is how you must write and, you know, this kind of who is very strict about do's and don'ts because some teachers can be like that. I think that's when it can get detrimental. And I'm very conscious as a teacher, you know, to not do that. Of course, I I have done it, you know, especially when I first started teaching, I wanted to be very helpful. And of course, I don't think I was being very helpful by giving my students such clear cut, you know, rules. It doesn't need, you don't need to go to school for sure, you know, to study, but it can help. I know that Honey, as a as a scriptwriter, she has shared with with people before, and we sh- shared with us as well that she has certain like um, formulas that you that you rely on to to sort of flesh out the story, right, Honey? And I think I think in some ways that is a good tool, perhaps, mm-hmm. to get you know get you started on the whole thing. And if knowing the the right tools to use is always useful, but yeah, but I think at the, at the end of the day. How you flesh that out, all that comes mm. from yourself. You have to basically make yourself go through the whole process. Well, I find that you, you do go. need a bit of structure in order to be creative. However, I, I did a short course on prose writing last year because prose writing is how I relax, right? Because script writing is like, it's a job. So it's very methodical in a sense of character development and you have to, you know, plot it out. And I realized it's the same amount of work. <laughs> to write a novel I'm like oh my god this is what I do in my actual job so I was like okay (laughs) anyway um (laughs) moving on to um what's on your bedside table what are you reading at the moment 
Oh, I'm re- reading um, Richard Osman. Oh, the latest one? No, not the latest one. The, the first one. Okay, I'm, I'm on the third book at the moment. Oh, right. He's okay. so prolific. My God. Fantastic, fantastic. I'm really enjoying it. He is. That's at least a book a year. More yeah. than a book a year, I think. Yes. At this stage, yeah. I'm reading things. So now I'm on a, on a mission to read books that are very different from the kinds of books I produce. So I'm learning from particularly crime books. So that's 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 my interest at the moment. Um, it's one of I'm my favorite genres. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. Well, it's a fantastic genre. Yeah, I, I like reading a lot of crime, which is what we and Raina discovered. It's the same kind of mindset that makes people read romances. It's like mm. a happily ever after, but in a different way. So a lot of people always read romance or crime as an in-between yeah. book kind of like the heaviest stuff and then you read something to feel better about the world. <laughs> Bad yes. guys can be caught, true love can be found. <laughs> and crime and romance are two most popular yeah. genres. Of them. Because yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because of that, I think. I think it's because the beats of yes. the of the of the story are yes. very familiar. Yes. So you know what's going to happen next, right? So you don't have to think mm. too much about that. You don't have to worry too much about that. <laughs> mm. Or, or uh, as they say, happily for now. Mm, right like uh, yes you caught the bad guy for mm. now, for now. <laughs> but the bad guy might come back yeah. like Moriarty <laughs> if I were to allow you to go into a bookstore tomorrow but you could only visit one genre area which one would that be like right now because I said I'm in this space I would be going to the crime fiction space yes usually it'd be literary fiction right Okay. Just general fiction or literary fiction, um, but now that's in fact that was where I was. At. Have you read Tana French at all? Because she does crime fiction, but she does very deep character stuff. Yes, and in fact, yes, um, Dublin Murders, which is actually a it's actually a TV series. Uh, and they took the first two of her Dublin Murder series novels, and it's one of the best crime series I've seen. And because of that, I went to read her books. And she, she follows a murder squad, but she doesn't follow the same characters. But the first two books, yeah. And, uh, and she's got a standalone one that she came out last year that I really like as well. I will recommend her. In fact, we just did a recording on based yeah, on so a murder space. mystery as yeah. well. It's like mashup. Yes, it's a sci-fi murder mystery. <laughs> it's called Ooh. Station Eternity. Mm. Very, yes. Very cool. And the more Diana hangs out with me, the more the more crime and horror she reads. <laughs> well, well, yes, even me. I, I, I'm more of a sci-fi fantasy person, but I seem to be a getting into influence. it because of honey. <laughs> Shivani, who do you write for? Who's your audience? Because you always have this clash between, you know, like as a Malaysian writer, it's very hard not to be influenced by Western, especially if you're an English-speaking English writer, right? But at the same time, there's also trying to find what it is your identity as a Malaysian writer, what kind of stories you want to tell, right? When you write your stories, who do you write them for? So, you know, when I was younger, I used to be very firm that I wrote for, you know, Malaysians. I was very clear in my mind. But then as I started writing more stories, I realized that that was actually limiting me as well, because then it just means that, I don't know, it it kind of created a, a a, kind, a framework in my mind that doesn't necessarily allow me to explore. So these days, I honestly, I just write for myself and then I see who picks it up because I've had a real range of people who have gravitated towards my books, Malaysians, non-Malaysians. And I've been trying to figure out like, 
what's the type of person who picked my book up? And mm. honestly, I cannot tell you what that type is. I've had at one point I said, oh, many um, Indian women are, are writing to me and saying that they're liking the stories. I'm like, oh, is it Indian women that I'm writing for? And then there will be this, you know, person from the you know man from the middle-aged man from the UK who who likes my book and then I'm like oh that's not that's not that's not true also so um I found that it's best if I don't have such some some an audience that's very specific in mind but I'm writing for you know to please myself you know to 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 reach the standards that I set for myself um and then I, I let it go you know let it go out into the world and see mm. where it lands Okay. Uh, what else can we expect from you? Are, are you are you working on anything right now? Is there anything that is going to be coming out soon? <laughs> Actually, I'm working on yes, I'm working on on a on a novel. Yeah, I don't know. It's set in Coal Island again. <laughs> that's that's all I'm, I can say. And it's something that I've been working on for for a while. And I'm at that stage where I'm doing the research and I'm hoping to start the process of writing. Um, once the semester ends, which is in May. So let's see. I mean, you created like uh, this coal island as your world, right? This is your Marvel universe, right? right. So do any of your characters come into each other's stories? Yeah. So, you know, I did an interview with uh, Shamila um, at BFM and they asked me this question because they, they interviewed me for Yalpanam. And Yalpanam, I don't know if you've read it, but it features a, a very old woman called Pushpanaigi. And so they asked me this question, like, is, will Pushpanayi be making an, an appearance uh, in, in another story? And I and I actually say, yes, she will be coming back And in this novel that I'm writing. And it's really exciting because, you know, it's it's sort of, it's like, you know, you know, when you watch TV shows where a character from another TV show appears, uh, you know, <laughs> it's got a sort of particular thrill about it. So I'm experiencing it's like, like CSI or like that. Special Victims Unit, right? Where everybody <laughs> just kind of goes around. And <laughs> I mean, it's one universe, That's right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, like like Shonda Rhimes, I think she likes to put characters from her other shows into, into well, Even Emily shows, right? St. John Mandel, right? Uh, she does that for her novel. Yes. So you have a little bit yes, of insight does. of yeah. another character. So even hers is a little bit sci-fi, a little bit magical realism, even hers kind of like intersect a little bit. Yeah. I think that's interesting because you have a pers- different perspective on this on this character yes. that you wrote before yes. from a, from somebody else's point of view. Yes, definitely. So there could be some of that. I mean, um, in my first book, uh, which is a collection of short stories, that happened because um, they were all short stories, uh, stories set on Coal Island. So some of the characters had entered the other stories and that was that was very fun interesting it's interesting should make yeah. a show i mean i do this all the time i'm such a hustler i'd be like hey you may make a show huh? i'm a script writer ask me let's do a cold island something i'm not sure yeah, what what it is you know <laughs> is it slightly anyway <laughs> okay slightly bonkers mm, yes mm. i have a bit of a caribbean vibe in the middle of uh, Mitz Klang or something. PD vibe. PD vibe, yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> very nice. Thank, Thank you. you so much for talking to us today. Thank you very much for having me and for asking such insightful questions and for engaging in a discussion about the book. <laughs> well, definitely looking forward to your next whatever. I mean, I haven't read your your last book. Maybe I'll pick that up in the meantime. <laughs> Or the stories. 
I, I do wish sometimes that, you know, when we get to speak to an author, uh, because there's always something that we have to hold back. We can't give the whole story away. It always feels like, oh, it'll be so much better. If we could actually have a full on book discussion with you and have really go into all the details. Well, but... let's do a book club or something you know, where we sit and dive into That would be lovely. That, I think, you know, definitely. What did they eat on Cole Island? <laughs> I... Can we have a recipe book? Recipe book of course. Whatever you eat in PD, then. <laughs> totally. I mean, it's, I don't really have to imagine much when I'm creating Coal Island because I just basically bring up images of Port Dixon. So that's how much it's derived, how, how much Coal Island is derived from PD. But yeah, thanks for reading. I hope it wasn't too depressing for you. <laughs> Is there actually any coal on the island? What's the main industry? I'm sorry. <laughs> she's really trying to imagine she the story. Saw this comment or somewhere somebody had done a review of my book on Instagram or something, and then somebody wrote a comment saying, "Wow, this author is really knowledgeable about coal island." And that's what that's, um, it's 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 fictional, you know. <laughs> um, really. But it's derived from uh, Pulau Arang. There is actually a Pulau Arang of. Uh, PD. Um, so that's how oh. I, I got the, the name. I just, you know, kind of just translated it. But um, yeah, I suppose at one time coal was, um, you know, one mm. of the industries on this on this island. Maybe I should write a history. A cult is an industry there. And um, yes. is tourism an industry <laughs> there? The one? Because there's a lighthouse, there's a lighthouse, yeah. so boats do come there. Correct. <laughs> again, like there's a lighthouse in PD, so again, like that's that's where I've taken mm. taken that lighthouse from. But maybe we'll find out more details about this book uh, when you when your new novel comes out. We'd find out more details. Yeah, about maybe Kauai something Island. that gives us um yeah a bit of a history, you know, of of the place. Yes, that would be interesting. Looking forward to that. Well, thank you. So we'll much. have you back on when that comes out then. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. What a lovely lady, Diana. I kind of want to hang out with her now. Oh, she's really lovely. You can really tell that from her books as well. She's very thoughtful. I, I actually, we had a ton of other questions I wanted to ask her, but I thought, hang on, if we go like this, you know, people are just going to basically not have to read the books anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say it took me a while to get into her book because it does fall a little bit into the category of Asian pain for me. Mm. So, sorry, Shivani, I'm not. that is not an insult to call your book part of Asian pain. But, you know, it, it's got a lot of those kind of like heavy issues. You need to be in a frame of mind to read her stuff. But she has some really lovely turns of phrases. I thought like her imagery and and I think that the lovely thing about setting it on somewhere like fictional like Cole Island, but yet heavily derived from her own um, living in Port Dixon, is that the island itself is a bit of a character. I thought that's, that's you know, like the, the weather of the island, you know, those kind of, you know, it feels, it does feel like a real place. So maybe by the time, you know, she's been writing about this fictional island for so long, right? It's literally a, a real place now. <laughs> I, I think it's also because, you know, like, like, like she says that uh, her... Her stories are set in, like, she thinks of PD when she thinks of the setting. So, you know, PD has this kind of like laid back pace to it, like it's a it's a holiday resort town kind of kind of place. Maybe that's what I was picking up on when I was like, I I kind of feel like you know, if I was imagining it in my head, it was kind of sepia tinted. You know that that was why I asked her if it was historical, but yeah, probably I was picking up on that the the resort town pace kind of kind of life 
kind of feel yeah. to it. Yeah. And, and and it does feel like being somewhere that has a beach and a sea that mm. surrounds it, right? Is mm. that people do kind of arrive on its shores like flotsam and jetsam, right? Like like a whole <laughs> bevy of people who might be slightly outcast or whatever. You know, you feel that, that it has that vibe, right? That it is a, a melting pot of all these people who have come there for one reason or another, you know, like whether they're immigrant or whether they're a cult or whether, you know, people trying to run away from civilization, you know, so it has that kind of like isolating vibe of it. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I haven't read her other stuff, so I don't have any other opinions than the ones that I've gotten from reading these two novellas. Yeah, but still, um, I mean, there were some pretty heavy topics there, although I will say, you know, don't let us put you off from reading this because we're talking, we're, we're discussing the heavier topics that come up. I don't think the writing itself is heavy in that sense. Yeah, um, the writing is very accessible, I thought. Yeah. Hmm. There's a certain sense of place and character that she puts into this, into the, her writing that you, it made me really think of, you know, there's that word, sonder. Um, that basically just means, you know, that, that sense of realization that other people have very rich inner lives. And that kind of like, that, that word came to mind when I was reading, like, you know, you really get this really, um, she really has very well painted characters that really fully fleshed and they come to life. And maybe that comes from being a professor of English literature. So. It did feel very literary to me. Like, you know, when you were reading it, it felt, yeah, you know, it is not just, you know, like I read very, a lot of very fast paced, very plotty kind of novels, but this is very character driven. It's, you know, so in that sense, it feels very literary to me. Mm. But yeah, again, don't, um, don't feel that you don't want to read something like this is because the subject matter is heavy. My suggestion is that to start with the second story first and then go to this first story because uh, I thought the second story was a bit easier to kind of get into personally for me but then again you know okay thank you so much for listening in on another episode of Two Book Picks Talking uh, we do realise that we have been a little spottier of late in producing content and I'd like to say that that's because we are spending a lot more time focusing on the quality rather than the quantity. <laughs> Is that being too, uh, too much, honey? <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> but, but we will still stay in touch on our social media. You know, give us a little bit of time. We have a lot to wander through. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, so this show is produced by myself and our wonderful, wonderful producer, Stephanie Ong. Um, we'd like to also thank our patrons, however many of you are left, for still supporting us. We will get there. Um, thank you for, you know, just being there for us for the past four years. Bye. Until next time.